Welcome to the Mission North Shore podcast. If you'd like to know more about our ministry here at the Mission, visit us online at www.themissionnorthshore.org. Thanks for listening. God bless. All right, let's open our Bibles to Matthew chapter 1. We're going to be talking a little bit of Christmas for the next few weeks. This week we're talking about Christmas is a promise and very much along the lines of what Jules was just saying, that each one of these promises that we have of Christmas fulfilled gives us a sense of how faithful God is. And then hopefully over the next few weeks you'll be able to see. This week we're talking about how faithful God is, and then that should give us hope, right? So next week we talk about that Christmas is hope. And then after that, if he's faithful and we have hope, we should have joy. And then on Christmas Eve, we'll talk about the fact that all of it is out of love. All right, well, let's open our Bibles, Matthew 1, and we will pray. Father, as we, um, as we open our, our Bibles, we humble ourselves. We remind ourselves why we're here, and that is to hear from you. We acknowledge that you are God that you created us and not we ourselves, that, that we are genuinely yours. You are our God and we are your people. And, uh, and we ask right now that you would speak as that good, good father that loves us. Speak to your children now exactly what each one of us needs to hear on this day and at this time. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, recently, as you all know, we've wrapped up our series in the book of Acts. Last week, we talked a little bit about Thanksgiving, and then this week, we're going to start a four-week Advent series. Now, the word Advent comes from a Latin word that just means coming or appearing or revealing. And in church history, Advent has been used to describe the four weeks leading up to and preparing for the celebration of the Christ nativity. And it is a quite old church tradition. Nobody knows exactly where it started, but we can see in some records that it traces back at least to 480 AD. So it's, it's about 1,500-year-old tradition of doing Advent. Nobody, as I said, knows exactly where it started or, or who started this whole Advent thing. But the one thing that I, I realized in kind of studying it and thinking about it is that it's incredibly practical that it serves a very good purpose, that, that somebody at least 1,500 years ago, they, they decided that the coming of Christ to come and save humanity from their sins was such an important thing that it was so significant that we should spend some serious time focused on it, contemplating it, preparing our hearts to celebrate it, right? I, I think that's a pretty good idea. Meaning that somebody some 1,500 years ago says, hey, look, we don't want the, the day that we use to celebrate the coming of, of our Savior to just pass us by without really taking the time to focus on what it means to have God step out of heaven and into earth for the sake of our soul." And I would submit to you the taking of that time and the focusing and the preparing our hearts for for the celebration of the coming of Christ in all of history has never been more needed than now. Would you agree with that? I mean, think about it. People have filled this coming season with more busyness, right? More, More foolish traditions, 
more fairy tales and commercialism, more distractions than any other time in history. Distractions that have nothing to do with the truth. In, in fact, if you think about it, I was sitting this week thinking about it, it's an anomaly. It's a mutation, really, if you think about the fact that, that Christmas is kind of unique in that out of a holiday that had this singular original purpose, namely to celebrate the coming of Christ, right? That's what Christmas is about. It's in the name. Like it should just give it away to everybody. It's Christ's Mass. Like it's, it's right there. The whole name tells you what it is. But out of this holiday that had no other purpose than to celebrate Jesus has morphed an entire different holiday that can be celebrated without a hint of its original purpose. And what I mean by that is this, that thousands and thousands of families will celebrate on December 25th with all of the trappings, they'll celebrate with trees and lights and Santa and songs and presents and giant meals, but without ever uttering the name Jesus. An entire holiday that has been morphed into another holiday that is completely removed from its original intent. And so in a very real way, the true Christmas has, has been hijacked by a very, very poor substitute. And so for this coming month, there's going to be a lot of people spending a lot of time and an effort preparing for Christmas, right? A lot, a lot of people, you know, decorating a lot of things, their houses and their trees and decorations going up all over. There's going to be a lot of cooking going on, getting ready. People going to the store and buying all the stuff that they got to make the cookies and the whole deal. All the travel plans being made, all the travel taking place, all of the shopping and the stress of getting the right gift for the right person and then wrapping it and all of the rest of it. You guys know what goes into it and all of the rest of it. And so what we're doing is we're saying that while they're preparing along those lines, that over the next four weeks during this Advent time, when it would be very, very easy for us to get distracted, we're, we're saying we don't want to be distracted. We don't want to be distracted by lesser things. Right? We're saying over the next month, we want to have our priorities right. We, we want to set a right tone for, for this coming month. At a time when our priorities could easily get way out of whack, we want to set them right. I was thinking about it in this way, in what we've done, and it's a danger for Christians as well to get caught up in all these trappings, isn't it? It's a danger for us to, to start to worry about all the lights and the cooking and the presents and all the rest of it, and let that kind of become center stage. And, and I started to think about, you ever go to um, like a, outdoor music festival, these big festivals. I don't know what they are now. When I was younger, it was like Lollapalooza and Warp Tour. And these were the big festivals. And what they would have is they would have one giant stage in the middle, right? Center stage, the big stage. And the big bands went on that stage, right? But what they would also have is around the property, like two or three other little stages, right? Where kind of smaller bands would play, maybe people you really hadn't heard of or, or you know, certainly less popular bands. But everybody's focus was on the big stage, right? Because that's where the action's at. And, and it, I started thinking this week that, it, that even as Christians, there's this danger 
of putting Jesus on the little stage, of going, yeah, yeah, I know that Jesus is a part of Christmas. I mean, yeah, of course, it's in the name, right? And Christmas Jesus, we, we got all that. He, he's over there playing on the little stage. But we got presents and we got lights and we got all the rest of the shiny things on the big stage. And so what we're saying for the next four weeks is we want to make sure that Jesus is on the big stage, right? That he's up there front and center, that he's the one we're celebrating, that he's the one that that we're most focused on. We're letting all the other things just kind of be secondary. Like they can be on little stages over there making a little bit of noise, whatever, but he's on the big stage. And so the first thing that, that we're going to do as we study Advent is we're going to study the fact that Christmas is an ancient promise of God to send us a Savior, right? This wasn't something that was just kind of done on a whim. But what I want us to grab a hold of this morning is the fact that God so committed Himself to humanity. He committed Himself to the only ones that He had created in His own image. We're the only ones created in God's image. And He committed Himself to us from the beginning, even before he created us. Look, look at a couple of verses with me. First Peter 1.18. For you know that God paid a ransom to save you from the empty life you inherited from your ancestors. And that ransom that he paid was not mere gold or silver. It was the precious blood of Christ, the sinless, spotless lamb of God. And God chose him, Christ, as your ransom long before the world began. That's powerful. That that he committed himself to you before he even created the world. Or Ephesians chapter 1 verse 4. Even before he made the world, God loved us. And he chose us in Christ to be holy and without fault. In his eyes. And this truth is essential to the Christmas story because what it does for us is it points to God's faithfulness. The fact that before he even laid the foundations of the earth, and regardless of how bad we mess things up, he loved us and he had already committed to give his all that we might be saved and be brought back into a relationship with him. And so if we look at the two Gospels, Matthew and Luke, that give us the the Christmas story, both of these Gospels contain within them these long genealogies. Matthew's Gospel begins with this big, long genealogies. And one of the things that this does, one of the things that this serves to do for us, having these genealogies in there, because you've read through them before and you've been, man, I'm just reading name after name after name, and what in the world am I reading these names for? And what it does for us and what it serves to do is to show us that what follows in the pages of the gospel is the fulfillment of God's ancient plan. That it didn't begin with a baby in the manger. That none of these things that have happened that we're reading in the Bible are haphazard in any way. The story doesn't begin with a baby in the manger. It wasn't as if somebody just came up and and saw this baby one night in Bethlehem and says, hey, that's a good-looking baby, you know? And we think he's going to do big things. So therefore, we're just going to put our hope into him. It didn't begin there. 
but rather the story begins with hundreds of promises that a loving God is going to send a redeeming Savior. Hence, all the way back to Adam and Eve, where God promised that one would come from the seed of the woman, and that's a reference to the virgin birth and Christmas time. There's no mention of a father, but out of the seed of the woman would come one who would crush Satan's head. And then as far back as Abraham, right? Some 4,000 years ago, God said to Abraham that through his descendants in Genesis chapter 12, one would come that would be able to bless the whole earth. The whole earth. And these are his promises. And, and these promises, of course, we know them as prophecies, but they're promises that God makes in advance so that when he fulfills them, we know that he's God, right? God made all of it. He, he told us what he's going to do ahead of time, and then he brings it to pass. And your Bible, that book that you hold in your hands, is one-third predictive prophecy, right? There are thousands of predictive prophecies in your hand right now. And as God has faithfully fulfilled these promises one by one over the last 4,000 years, it proves that he is God and that the Bible is 100% true. Right? It's how we know we got the right God. How we know we got the right book. It's how we know that all that Jesus said and did is truth. And within these thousands of prophecies, one-third of that book that you hold in your hand, within these thousands of prophecies are hundreds of prophecies, about 300 of them, over 300 of them, hundreds of prophecies of the Messiah, the promised Savior. There's over 300 prophecies of Jesus's first coming that were fulfilled perfectly. And so what God has done is he's given us an abundance of prophecies and he's made them so detailed so that anybody that's willing to look would be able to see who the Messiah is. These prophecies in a very real way paint a picture of what Christ would look like when he came so that when he came, humanity would know who he is. And so in a world full of counterfeit religious claims, we know that we have truth. We just finished the, the series in the book of Acts. And if you remember back just a few weeks ago when we were in Acts chapter 26, Paul used these promises of God in his defense and kind of gospel presentation to King Agrippa. You remember back here, I'll put it up on the screen, what he said. He says now in verse 6, he says, Now I'm on trial because of my hope, and notice what he says, in the fulfillment of God's promises made to our ancestors. He, he's saying, I'm in jail because I recognize that God has fulfilled the promises of Scripture. And then he goes on to say this, I stand to this day testifying both the small and great, stating, and notice this, stating nothing but what the prophets and Moses said was going to take place, that the Christ had to suffer, and that by reason of his resurrection from the dead, he would be the first to proclaim light both to the Jews and to the Gentiles. He's saying, my whole defense, all that I'm telling you, I'm stating nothing to you. I'm not telling you anything that the prophets didn't already tell you long, long ago. 
And so his point is that if anyone's willing to truly look at the evidence that God gave for the Messiah, namely all of these Old Testament prophecies, they should clearly see him as this promised Savior. You see, the problem with those that are rejecting Christ now is not that the evidence for Christ has been studied and left wanting, but the problem is that they haven't looked at the evidence, that it's gone unlooked at. And so let's look at some of these Christmas promises that have been fulfilled. There are others. I'm going to give you about five. There's over 300. I think it would take a little longer if we did all 300. So we'll do about five today and. uh and that'll be a little more reasonable. The first one is kind of a two for one. It includes both the virgin birth and that the baby would be Emmanuel, God with us, God incarnate, God in the flesh. Look at Matthew chapter one, verse 18. And you can just keep your Bible open there to Matthew. We're gonna trace along till we get to chapter three. But look at Matthew chapter one, verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And this is a key verse, verse 21. And she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Very important. The angel says, you must name him Jesus. Jesus is the Hebrew word Yeshua, which means to save. He says, name him to save, because he's going to save his people from his sins. Verse 22 is key verse for this morning. Now, all of this took place to what? Fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophets. What are we talking about? Fulfilled prophecies, right? All these promises. Now, this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophets. And now he quotes from the book of Isaiah. Behold, the virgin shall be with child, shall bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. And so here the angel comes to Joseph and quotes Old Testament scripture, Isaiah 7 and Isaiah chapter 9. And he does so to explain to Joseph that this whole thing is the fulfillment of God's promises. He's saying, listen, God told you ahead of time what he was going to do. And now the angel shows up to tell Joseph that he's now doing it, that these things are now coming to pass. Let me give you another one where the Messiah was supposed to be born. Also a prophecy in Bethlehem. Look at Matthew chapter 2, verse 1. We're just going to trace along till we get to chapter 3. Matthew chapter 2, verse 1. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, in the days of Herod the king, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who is born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east, and we've come to worship him. And when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled with all Jerusalem. And then gathering together, notice this, all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. 
And they said to him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for this is what has been written, and here it is again, for this is what has been written by the prophet. You, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah, for out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And so the chief priests and these scribes, they knew what Scripture said. They knew what God had told them hundreds of years earlier in the book of Micah, and they knew that the promise of God of this Messiah to come was going to be born in Bethlehem of Judah. Scripture is very clear, and it's very uh, descriptive, like it's not left open. He tells us exactly the Bethlehem that it's going to be. It's going to be the Bethlehem in Judah, which is very important because there's also a Bethlehem in Galilee. So he tells them even which Bethlehem is going to be in the city of David, of course, which is a quote from Micah chapter 5, verse 2. Another one is that Mary and Joseph were told to flee from Bethlehem, from King Herod, and to go to Egypt. Matthew chapter 2, verse 13 now. Matthew 2, 13. Now behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Get up and take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is going to search for the child to destroy him. And so Joseph got up and he took the child and his mother. And while it was still night, they left for Egypt. And he remained there until the death of Herod. And then here it is again. And this was to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophets. Out of Egypt, I have called my son. Another fulfilled prophecy now from Hosea chapter 11, verse 1. Or another one is that of the prophecy of Herod slaughtering the babies, boys of Bethlehem. Matthew chapter 2, verse 16 now. We're just following along. Matthew chapter 2, verse 16. When Herod saw that he had been tricked by the Magi, he became very enraged. And he sent and he slew all the male children who were in Bethlehem and all of its vicinity from two years old and under, according to the time which he had determined from the Magi. And then in verse 17, we read it again. Then what had been spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. The voice was heard in Ramah weeping, great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they were no more. Of course, this is a prophecy from Jeremiah 31, verse 15. And I'll give you one more. And that is that there would be this herald, this forerunner that would come before the Messiah that would proclaim his coming. And, the, and this forerunner, the, the whole purpose of him was to prepare the hearts of the people to meet with the Savior. Now we pick up in Matthew chapter 3, verse 1. It says, Now in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then what does he say in verse 3? For this is the one referred to by Isaiah the prophet when he said, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. Another fulfillment from Isaiah chapter 40 and Malachi chapter 3. And the prophecies only go on from there. We're only just scratching the surface. We're only messing with kind of some of the Christmas prophecies, and we didn't even touch all of those. You get to about 325, roughly, if we were to do all of them, where we're told the exact family that the Messiah would come through, through Judah and through David. 
We're told what the Messiah would do when he come, even down to the way he would teach in parables. All of that was prophesied ahead of time. We were told where he would minister, by the way of the sea in Galilee. We're given the triumphal entry when he would come down the Mount of Olives and into the uh, city of Jerusalem through the East Gate. And we're told in Daniel chapter 9, the very day that that's going to happen. It was predicted to the very day. And then all of the events of Christ's death and burial and resurrection and ascension were all prophesied ahead of time. Over 300 prophecies fulfilled perfectly. And so you see what I mean then when I say Christmas is a promise. It's a promise fulfilled. And a promise is only good if it's kept, right? And whether a promise is kept or not speaks to the character of the one who promised it, correct? Haven't all of us known flaky people that have a tendency or a track record to promise things and then not come through? Anybody ever met anybody like that? Maybe you're sitting there going, it's kind of me, right? If you've never met anybody like that, it might actually be you, right? You got to be careful with that one. But we all understand that that's a part of human nature, that we promise things and we don't come through with them oftentimes, right? But that's not who our God is. That's the point of all of these fulfilled prophecies that God made all the way along so that we would know that our God is a promise-keeping God. He's faithful. Look at what it says in Psalm 146. It says, joyful are those who have the God of Israel as their helper, whose hope is in the Lord their God. He made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything that's in them, and He keeps every promise forever. Which is incredibly good news, because we're told in 1 John chapter 2, verse 25, that this is the promise that He Himself made to us, eternal life. You see, it's quite good news that what he said there in Psalm 146, 6, that he keeps every promise forever is good news to us because the promise that he himself made to us is eternal life. And so what we see, what I'm hoping to do this morning is build this understanding into us that we see that God has fulfilled all of these promises, thousands of them in Scripture, hundreds of them concerning the Messiah, so that we would see that God is faithful. And He's faithful even when we're not faithful. That's the gospel, right? But God demonstrated His own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. When we were rebellious and undeserving, Christ loved us and died for us. Even then, when humanity had turned its own way and thumbed its nose at God and was going to do its own way, its own thing anyway, God still went to the cross for our souls. That's the gospel, that we're completely undeserving, having done a single thing to earn our salvation. It was all a gift of God out of His love and sheer grace. And so this morning as we wrap this thing up, what struck me and what I've kind of been thinking about all week, and I hope it strikes every one of us the same way, and I hope that it humbles every one of us the same way, and that is this, that God loves us and He committed Himself to us even before he created us. 
That's heavy if you sit and think about it very long. I kind of sat and thought about that this week. These verses that I shared with you earlier in the message, 1 Peter 1.20, where it said, God chose him as our ransom long before the world began. Or Ephesians 1.4, even before he made the world, God loved us and chose us in Christ. That's the commitment that God made to us. Not some flaky commitment like we often make, like, you know, somebody asks you to do something, and you're like, yeah, you know, I'll I'll help you for sure, maybe, probably, you know? That's usually our commitment, right? I'm there, dude, no problem, most likely, if I can get around to it and find the time. No, when God committed to us, what did He do? He went all in. He committed Himself because there was no other answer for our sin and brokenness. He committed himself. That's what it says. 1 Peter 2.24 He himself bore our sins in his body on a cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness for by his wounds you were healed. And so when we think about this baby 2,000 years ago in a manger in Bethlehem, What we need to think about is the fact that God was fulfilling in this His ancient promise to us. He was displaying in that baby in that manger the display of depth of His love and His care that He Himself would come for us, right? Jesus would later say in the Gospels, when he was describing his ministry, he said, for the Son of Man has come to seek and save the lost. And then he would go on to fulfill that mission on the cross when he bore our sins. And so, simply, as we enter a month where so many things are going to try and pull us away from those truths right there, where there's going to be so many things that'll be easy to distract us. You and I need to be extra diligent, don't we? We need to be extra diligent to center our lives and center our families. Talk to our kids about. In a time where there's so many things that could capture their attention and capture our attention, we we need to take the time to center them on Jesus, to make Him the focus of our priorities, to put Jesus on that big stage, right? Because all the other things, you know, they're okay if they're in their little place, but Jesus needs to be on that big stage. Let everything else be secondary to him. And so I want to read this one verse that I thought was incredibly fitting, and we'll pray and wrap it up for the day. As we go into a time of worship, it says in Isaiah 25, 1, got this, Lord, you're my God. Right? All the other things are secondary. You're my God. I will exalt you and praise your name for in perfect what? Faithfulness. In perfect faithfulness, you have done wonderful things, things planned long ago. What was planned long ago? 
before you were even created, your redemption, that you might be in relationship with Christ. And so for this next month, when everything's tugging at your heart, make that relationship that he planned long ago to redeem your soul for, make that relationship number one. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that you help us with this. We're so easily distracted by so many things. Some of us feel this tug this time of year to prepare so many things and decorate so many things and cook so many things and buy so many things. And you know, Lord, you know all the foolishness that we've filled this time of year with. But we pray right now that you'd capture our heart, Lord. May we sit in awe this morning as we begin to worship you, Lord. May our hearts be in awe of the fact that even before you created us, you committed yourself to us, that you so wanted relationship with us, that you were already prepared to give yourself at the moment that you created us. And that ought to, in our hearts, Move us, Lord. It ought to create an awe in our hearts, a wonder and an amazement in our hearts. So, Lord, as we worship you now, stir those truths. May we never sit here in a time of worship, hands in our pockets, or or off thinking about other things, but may we focus on the fact that your love is proven out in your ancient promise. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.